Langley. And uh, as I was doing some of that research, I discovered that uh, Herb Thiessen was one of the founding members who came over from North Langley to uh, be a part of this. Well, Herb is my dad's first cousin. Um, I'll never forget at one family get-together, uh, Herb's dad and one of my other, other uncles, both of whom had been, uh, had been missionaries, talked about growing up in Saskatchewan, firing live 22 shells across the coulee at each other. <laughs> Two Mennonite pacifist missionaries <laughs> firing real live ammunition across the coulee in southern Saskatchewan. Uh, Corey Alstead, who's worship pastor at North Langley, was uh, in my youth group in Winnipeg many years ago. <laughs> Corey's dad was the first senior pastor that I worked with, so coming back here and realizing that Corey's the worship pastor, he's married, he's got kids that are learning how to drive, suddenly I realize I'm a little bit older than I was back then. And then we've been very good friends with Peter and Debbie Ash, and we vacationed uh, in Manitoba for a number of years together, which that connection was already existing in Brady. Grown up so much. And the big thing when we were vacationing, you know, Brady was up early, you know, and so Peter would have to take him for a walk, and he'd walk by our place, and Brady got, is the sleeping lady up yet? Talking about my wife, Bev. And uh, so I said to him this morning, I said, did you talk to the sleeping lady? He says, yeah, I was shocked and amazed she was awake. <laughs> and then I have a whole row of family here, because I grew up in Chilliwack, and so I have... Uh, I have family who have come to visit me, and they're a heckling section, and so uh, we should have asked for crowd control <laughs> before we came in, but uh, uh, some of my family have, uh, they have a conflict because my niece and her husband are being installed in a, in a church and mission, so some of my family have gone there, and some of them have gone here. Um, Craig, uh, my nephew, threatened me. He said that he was going to sit in the front row. With his, with his Flames Suck shirt wear on. And I'm kind of disappointed you didn't do that, Craig. And those of you who saw my video trailer, you realize I'm a BC Lions fan, even though I live in Regina. But when it comes to hockey, I'm an ABC fan. That means anybody but Canucks. My family are also ABC fans, but for them that means anybody but Calgary. <laughs> um, that was until last year when my nephew Brad, who's, uh, who's a goalie, was playing in the Calgary farm system, which I had always said to my family, you know, I said, God's going to have a sense of humor. Brad's going to sign with the Flames, and that's going to be God's way of getting you to cheer for the Flames. Well, last year, Brad was with the Flames, and guess what? Suddenly, my family took an interest in uh, the Calgary Flames, so my prophetic pronouncements came true. And uh, so, as you might have guessed, uh, we are quite a competitive family. We were all together last night in Chilliwack, and it was a uh, a raucous event, and we blame our mother for our, uh, our, our competitiveness. Uh, a number of years ago, we were all together, and we were playing. They, Mom and Dad still lived in Chilliwack at that point in time, and we were playing a game of scrub baseball as a family, and I threw my mom out at first base. And if you can believe it, my mom, and if you see my mom, like, she's this tall. <laughs> she looked at me, and she said, you idiot. <laughs> Can you imagine a mother saying that to a son? One of my nephews was out in the, in the outfield, and in shock, he said, Grandma just called Uncle Ken an idiot. Now, I'm sure your families are nothing like that, that ours is unique. Right. <laughs> August 2014, we were able to be together as a family to celebrate Mom and Dad's 60th wedding anniversary. We would celebrated it in the Chilliwack General Hospital. But we were glad that mom was still with us and that she's still with us today. She'd been in the hospital for an extended stay, and we weren't sure she was going to pull through at some points. But uh, she's still with us, and we are extremely grateful for that. And she's just as feisty as she always has been. She's a huge Blue Jays fan, loves the Canucks, 
hates the flames, <laughs> but we cheer for the same football team. You know that no family is perfect. Mine isn't, yours isn't, and the church family that you know as Jericho Ridge isn't either. Now, I know that some of that comes as a complete shock to you. <laughs> We've spent time over the course of Friday evening and Saturday talking about the ways in which you and your church function as a system. There are some ways in which you function as a church that are not as healthy or as helpful as you need to be, want to be, or as God wants you to be. Some of you who have been a part of Jericho Ridge for a long time might be a tad bit anxious that I'm being this transparent when you know there are visitors here. Guess what? If they go to church, the church they go to is no different than yours. It's not perfect either. If they tell you it is, they're either profoundly naive or they're something less than honest with themselves and with you. And if someone's here today checking this church thing out, guess what? They'll probably appreciate the honesty. Because sad to say, most churches aren't all that honest about what's really going on with themselves or with those who are checking them out. If you think you're going to find a perfect church somewhere, whatever you do, don't join it because you'll ruin its perfect record. I'm not saying you shouldn't look for another church, but go in with your eyes open. The church you're going to has issues just like the one you might be thinking of going to. My wife and I have just made a transition to a new church. It was a difficult and a painful process. And given the work I do and the profile I have in Regina, what I said to the key leaders was this, I'm not looking for a church that's perfect, but I am looking for a church that can be honest and upfront about its stuff. And every church has stuff. The issue is not that you have stuff. It's about what you do with your stuff and how much you're able to talk about your stuff in healthy and God-honoring ways. Most churches don't talk about their stuff. And if they do, they don't do it in God-honoring ways. Every church is made up of people just like you and me who aren't perfect. That doesn't mean we're bad people, at least not most of the time. It just means we're humans. I work with churches from many different denominations, and it doesn't matter whether it's Mennonite Brethren, Covenant Church of Canada, Salvation Army, Baptist, Evangelical Free Church, Presbyterian Christian Missionary Alliance, their issues aren't a whole lot different than yours. Wherever you have people meeting together as a church, you're going to have issues. Change the denominational label, make it non-denominational, you're still going to have issues. The bigger issue is how you deal with the issues. So can we agree that we're going to be a tad bit more honest about where things are at in your present, even if it makes some of you uncomfortable? You're in a series focusing on four significant stones. And I'd like to continue on that theme as we look at where you are now, focusing on your identity and your purpose as a church. You've got your stuff. You've faced some challenges and some pain in the last 12 to 18 months. Let's not pretend that it's something less than that. It's not been the most fun part of your journey as a church. And if some of you have been a part of a church and you're here, this church and you're hearing this for the first time, sorry to burst your bubble, but this is Jericho Ridge. If you're checking it out, this is Jericho Ridge and probably I could say some of the same things about whatever church you attend if this isn't your regular church. You know, if this wasn't the most fun part of your journey the last 12 or 18 months, I probably wouldn't be here. That's why I'm here. But you're also not the first church to go through this experience. 
But like I said to the people who are here on Friday night and Saturday, what sets your church apart is that you have called me. Not because you've called me, but you've called somebody from the outside. You've said, you know, we've got stuff. And we need somebody who could come in and help give us some perspective. Your leadership recognized that it might be helpful to have an external resource person to help you gain some understanding of your recent past, give greater clarity to your present, and then help you to develop a plan that gives you the potential of shaping a different future from here on out. I say potential because at the end of the day, it's a choice that you have to make individually and collectively. You have a better understanding today of who you are as a congregation than you did on Friday night. Granted, you may not like all of what you understand or be happy about what you now know about yourself as a congregation. For some of you, it's confirmed what you already kind of suspected or were sensing for a while. Some of you probably thought you were all alone, that nobody else saw it that way. Information is fine, but information alone doesn't necessarily result in transformation. It's what you do with the information that you now have that is the critical factor because God is much more committed to yours and my transformation than He is in just filling us with information. His commitment to me, to you individually, and to you as a congregation is to transform us, to make us more like Jesus. You can't change your past. It is what it is, for better or for worse. You can't undo some of the mistakes you've made. But you have complete control over the choices you make regarding your future moving forward. You can start writing a new and different chapter in the history book of Jericho Ridge, and you can start it today. It's true for you individually, and it's true for you collectively as a church. In fact, for some of you, it may have already started this weekend as you've gained a better understanding of who you are as a congregation, your part in the puzzle, and you've made a personal choice to start doing some things differently. As we focus on your present, let me begin by focusing on your identity. Jericho Ridge was started because a group of people responded to Jesus' call, follow me. Their response in, to Jesus' call resulted in the birth of Jericho Ridge back in 2005. You just celebrated your 10th anniversary. Some of you were here from the beginning. Others have joined at some point along the way since then. Your identity as a community of faith is rooted in Jesus' follow me call. Oz Guinness in his book, The Call, suggests that the two words more than any other that have changed the course of human history are the words follow me. Reflect on that for a moment as it relates to your life individually on the life of the congregation you're a part of. What I think you'll discover is that Guinness is onto something significant. Sometimes the follow me call is, is couched in the slick marketing of that must have, can't live without it product. Every day, more times than we can count, we're bombarded with a consumerist mantra of follow me and I will give you what you don't have. More often than we care to admit, we follow the Pied Piper of consumerism only to arrive at the destination of disappointment, hopelessness, and emptiness. The call that somehow sounded so appealing ends up with a hollow ring to it and usually a much bigger price tag. <laughs> Virtually every generation in history can point to a charismatic leader who generated a committed, loyal, and sometimes fanatical following by issuing the call, follow me. Every generation has been impacted for better or for worse by that kind of decisive leadership. Some of those leaders have used their persuasive abilities to inspire, 
and empower others to accomplish feats that few dream possible. Others have used their charisma and personal power to generate a group of followers who they in turn oppressed, suppressed, and repressed. 2,000 years ago, a carpenter from Nazareth said to 12 young men, follow me. And the world has never been the same since. Neither were they. Their priorities and their values were transformed and their life direction was forever altered. Jesus' call to those 12 young men is recorded in each of the Gospels, but Mark records, Mark's record reads as follows. He says, one day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, come follow me and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little farther up the shore, Jesus saw Zebedee's sons, James and John, in a boat repairing their nets. He called them at once, and they followed him, leaving their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired hand. Now, the danger we face is glossing over the significance of what's being communicated in those verses. Many of us know that story. It's not new to us. For some of you, it is new. But for those of us who know that story, we know what it says. We know the story. But as you reflect on Mark's record of Jesus' call, what you notice is the urgency in terms of the response. It was immediate, it was radical, and it was decisive. They walked off the job. Now think about that for a moment. When was the last time someone said to you, follow me, and you dropped everything and went with them? Immediately. Left behind everything that you and others would consider to be important, even essential to a stable, healthy, normal, everyday life. Nowadays, if you do that, your friends would be admitting you into a psychiatric ward of your local hospital. But in each of the gospel records, we see that Jesus' call was so compelling and irresistible that these fishermen left everything and they did so immediately. They didn't leave some things. They didn't leave most things. They left everything. Whatever, you know, prior claims had captured their life focus and attention immediately lost their appeal and validity. Was it because their lives to that point had been so terrible? If that was the case, then you might be able to explain it that way. However you try to explain it, what is unmistakable is that these men left everything to follow Jesus. Their father, the hired servants, the nets, the boats. All were left behind as they committed themselves wholeheartedly to follow Jesus. And that begs the question, who was this man who called them? Who was this man whose call was so compelling that they would abandon everything in response? The call to follow Jesus meant that each of them had to radically alter their priorities and the values which had shaped the trajectory of their lives up to that point in time. Now, it appears that they made that adjustment without any hesitation, without any reservation or apparent struggle. I suspect that if you're like me, you'd make those kinds of core alterations if, to your life if you knew that your life would be easier, more efficient, more enjoyable. Instead of their lives getting easier, responding to the follow me call meant life would get harder for these 12 young men. There would be great personal cost attached to that decision. Now, it wouldn't surprise me if that makes you a bit uncomfortable, because it makes me uncomfortable. 
I wish it wasn't so. Where we try to sugarcoat the cost of following Jesus, he didn't. He never shied away from letting others know what the cost would be, and the 12 would find out soon enough what it would cost them personally. Listen to Jesus' response to an interested observer. Another of his disciples said, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. Jesus told him, follow me now. Let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. There's no sugarcoating there. No political correctness. Just the straight goods. Every one of us have responded to the follow me call. Individually, we've responded, and collectively, as we come together in local congregations, that we've responded. But the question is, whose call have we responded to? Whose invitation has been so compelling that we've abandoned all other claims on our life to embrace that call? Or whose call has felt like it demanded too much of us that we rejected or ignored that call to follow an easier call? If someone were able to objectively evaluate you on the basis of the priorities that consume your energies and life focus, whose call would they say has been so compelling and so irresistible to you as a church, as an individual? Is it the call of materialism which promises happiness and contentment with the accumulation of material resources and possessions? Is it the call of escapism which promises relief from the pressures of life by numbing the emptiness you feel with excessive reliance on something else that offers short-term pleasure or relief, but in the end leaves us feeling even more empty? Is it the call of self-centeredness which assures you that there's nothing wrong with focusing on your own needs because you deserve it? Is it the call of autonomy which says that you don't need to be accountable to anyone because you are your own boss? Is it the call of a pain-free and safe life which would have you believe that it's possible to have that experience if you just control your world enough, if you take no risks, if you adopt a better safe than sorry attitude towards life? Or is it the call of Jesus who said that you ultimately find your life by losing it? You find your life not in living a risk-free life, but in risking it all, who said that true fulfillment in life is found not in self-centeredness, but in self-sacrifice and service of others. To embrace the follow-me call of Jesus is to radically alter your personal priorities and the priorities of the church. And that will always manifest itself in the way in which you live your life. Any examination and study of the Bible that doesn't lead to concrete behavioral change aborts what God designs the Bible to give birth to. If you're going to be, a true, to, if you're going to be true to Jesus, follow me, call, then the goal of the study of Scripture is not the accumulation of spiritual information. The goal is spiritual formation and transformation. To be brutally honest with you, I really don't care what you, that you know a whole lot more about who you are as a congregation today than you did on Friday. I'm more concerned with the so what, now what? What are you going to do with the information you have? How will you allow God to use that to transform you, to help you follow him more consistently, closely, and authentically in the midst of your stuff? If someone were to assess and evaluate the priorities that consume your energy and focus as a church, whose call, would they say, has been so compelling that you couldn't resist it? 
Is it the call that suggests you can focus all of your energies on those who are a part of the church, particularly those who've built the church and are the kind of the long-term founding members as if the church were an exclusive country club? Is it the call that invites you to insulate yourself from the world out there that has so many social problems and that doesn't share or embrace your values and worldview? Is it the call that says you only want people who agree with you, who go with the flow and never ask the tough questions, and when they do ask the tough questions, they quickly discover there's no room for them? I can tell you that every one of those scenarios are true in Christian churches today, and quite likely some are true for you as Jericho Ridge. A few years back, I wrote a book called The Anxious Congregation. It came out of my doctor of ministry work at Cary Theological College on the UBC campus book is part fable and part conventional writing. And the premise of the book is that as much as churches and individuals would say they've responded to the follow me call of Jesus, what they've opted for is to follow the call to live a safe, pain-free life in the church. The vast majority of their decisions are influenced more by a passionate commitment to manage the anxiety that's always bubbling just underneath the surface of every church or is in full raging storm mode. Their decisions aren't motivated by what does it mean to follow Jesus in this moment. It's motivated by how can we keep the lid from blowing off this pressure cooker? How can we make a decision that will upset as few people as possible? Now, no church would ever be so blatant to name their motivation that way. But as I've interacted with people who've read the book, the comment I've heard from almost everyone is this. You're talking about my church. Jesus, by virtue of his own life example, illustrated that living out God's call is neither about insulating nor sheltering yourself from the world. It's not about focusing only on yourself. It's not about structuring life in such a way that you can make it as safe as possible. It's about engaging your world in such a way so as to be salt and light. It's about focusing not only on the blessing that is ours as fellow heirs of God's covenant with Abraham, it's also about the second half of the covenant with Abraham, that of being a blessing to the communities in which God has placed you as individuals and your congregation. It's about acknowledging that sometimes the follow me call of Jesus scares you to death, but you're going to follow it anyway. Sometimes the follow me call of Jesus costs you a lot. Okay, almost always it costs you a lot. But you're going to follow it anyway. It's not about mitigating and eliminating the anxiety associated with following Jesus. It's about acknowledging that the anxiety is there and following anyway. Can I be so bold to suggest that some of what you've been through in the past year has been intensified because deep down, anxiety started bubbling up just below the surface and it turned into a 15-foot swell. And the boat you know as Jericho Ridge has been rocked by it. My wife and I went to Mexico in uh, early July. She won a sales contest with her trip, and our kids gifted us with a, a, a sunset cruise on a catamaran. We both hit milestone birthdays, and we have a 35 anniversary this year. And this cruise was, for me, was absolutely incredible. We had 15-foot swells. And, uh, but there were some people on the cruise who spent the whole time in the bathrooms because they were not, they did not like coming, seeing that wave coming, riding up the top and coming down the other side. I thought I was on an adventure. <laughs> I suspect that you've not experienced your 15-foot swells as an adventure. 
And I suspect that what you've done, often subconsciously, but sometimes very consciously, is to try to control that 15-foot swell, pretend that it doesn't exist, or marginalize that swell. Here's the part that's been difficult for you as a congregation. That 15-foot swell has had many faces attached to it. You've probably never described it that way, but that, bet that what is, that's what it's felt like. So my question to you this morning is this. What does it mean to follow Jesus when your boat is being hit by what feels like a 15-foot swell of anxious reactivity? What does it mean to wrestle collectively with the question, Jesus, what do you want us to do right now as we're in the middle of this storm? The disciples felt that. The storm was raging. These seasoned fishermen were afraid for their lives, and they had reason to be afraid. And Jesus' response to them was, why are you afraid? You have so little faith. Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves, and suddenly there was a great calm. The disciples were amazed, and their question was, who is this man? Even the winds and the waves obey him. The same Jesus that calmed the Sea of Galilee for those disciples is in the boat with you in the middle of your storm, and he says the same thing to you. The implication is that Jesus is calling you to a deeper level of faith, to trust that the follow me call which led a group of people to plant this church 10 years ago is still the same to you today. What it looks like is going to be very different, but your identity is still rooted in that call. Jesus calls you today in the midst of your storm, follow me. But not only is your identity rooted in Jesus' follow me call, your pur purpose is rooted in a focused response to the follow me call. If you follow Jesus through the gospels, what you see is that he had one mission, one sense of direction, and he was passionately committed to it. He didn't run here today and there tomorrow. He was on a mission to Jerusalem, and that mission would cost him his life. Many tried to stop him, but Jesus was undeterred. There was no stopping him. He was focused, and he was all in with that mission. His mission was, first of all, to be a disciple and then to call others to be disciples. Whatever else it is you do as a church, if making disciples isn't at the heart of it, then you've not responded to the follow me call of Jesus. In order to make disciples, you have to, first of all, be a disciple of Jesus. A person who says, I'm going to follow the pattern of Jesus and I'm going to live my life like Jesus did. In order to be a church who calls others to become disciples of Jesus, you have to be a church that is predominantly made up of disciples. A church is no more or no less than the people who make up that church. If a church has a discipleship problem, it's because the people in that church aren't living out the follow me call of Jesus the way Jesus intended that call to be lived out. The follow me call of Jesus is a, is a call to engage in a focused spiritual formation and spiritual transformation process. It's, life, it's living life asking the question first of all at an individual level and then at a church level, God, what does it mean for me? What does it mean for us as a church to follow you in this situation? Here's what I know based on my study of Scripture. God's not going to ask you to go this way today and a completely opposite direction tomorrow. That doesn't mean he's not going to ask you to alter your course at points in your journey, but it will be the exception, not the norm. What drove Jesus more than anything else was his passion to do the will of God. 
Every move was predicated by asking the question, God, what would you have me do in this situation? When Jesus was taken out into the desert and tempted, each of those temptations were designed to distract him from the fundamental call of God on his life. In your life as a congregation, there have been distractions that have taken you away from the essence of God's call to you. One of the things you've discovered as, about yourselves is that you're very spontaneous when it comes to strategy. You can turn on a dime. Churches that are high on spontaneity, on spontaneity when it comes to strategy are most often not spontaneous because they're driven by a focused response to the follow me call of Jesus. For most churches, and I've worked with a lot of them, the extent of their strategic planning is to do what they did last week. The really keen ones, the really keen ones will tweak what they did last week. But tweaking what you did last week is not the answer to your most important question. The God, what would you have us do? Who would you have us become questions rarely show up on the radar screen. Most churches have no solid process for collectively discerning where is it that God's calling us to go? Who's he calling us to become? And I'll give you a little secret as to why that's the case. That's because they're led by pastors who've never been trained to ask those questions. And I'm a trained pastor. They've never been trained to ask those questions by the seminaries and Bible colleges that train them. Most pastors who come out of seminaries are managerial types who are really good at maintaining what is. Entrepreneurs rarely go to seminary. Seminaries don't tra train pastors to think entrepreneurially because most often the professors are not entrepreneurs. I will never forget one sermon. Peter, I don't know if you were there. Peter and Debbie and I went to seminary again, but Ed Newfold, our New Testament prof, was speaking in chapel in seminary one day. He was speaking on, on the book of Acts, talking about Stephen, and he mentioned how Stephen was prepared to ask the questions that nobody else was asking, and it cost him his life. And then Ed stepped out from behind the pulpit, and he said this, seminaries are designed to maintain the status quo. You could have heard a pin drop because the academic dean was sitting in the chapel. <laughs> but he was right. I have never forgot that. I was in Calgary five weeks ago and I met with Terry Young who heads up the Masters of Leadership uh, program at Ambrose University. And we talked about how seminaries, because I see this across the board, there are common patterns in terms of the challenges uh, you know, churches experience and pastors experience in churches. And as a meeting with Terry, we talked about how seminaries need to change the way in which they train pastors to work in, in local congregations. Ambrose is one of the seminaries that's leading the way in revamping their course structure and curriculum when it comes to training pastors. And I think that the, the MB seminary is heading that way in the new role that Keith is transitioning in. But when I went to seminary, I didn't hear one thing about how to help a church discern where it was that God was calling him to go. Never heard it once. Didn't hear one thing about how to manage a staff. A lot of churches, when you get into a multi-staff situation, you get pastors who are, you know, trained to, you know, kind of be solo pastors, and all of a sudden they got a staff. They were never trained to do that. I didn't hear one thing about how to get out of my office and get into the, involved in the community with people who never darkened the doorway of a church, let alone the church I was pastor at. I never had one thing about how to work with a board as a pastor. Not one thing. And yet each of those things are pretty critical to the, the work a pastor does day to day. Right, Brad? <laughs> I heard a lot about Greek and Hebrew. Even spoke a bit of it. Don't forget that, Craig. <laughs> Craig's just starting in it <laughs> at Acts. When the woman who owned Zigzag in Lacombe, Alberta, who didn't attend any church in the community, 
needed someone to help her daughter and the rest of their family deal with a tragic accidental death of her daughter's husband, leaving her daughter a widow and her her two boys fatherless. Quite frankly, she didn't care how much Greek or Hebrew I spoke. (laughs) All she cared about was the friendship we developed because I was there every day for coffee. She cared about what I could bring by way of comfort and support to them as a family in a very difficult time. Seminary never trained me for that. That was a part of who I was. And when her daughter met another man who, in her words, said, loves me and loves my boy, she asked me if I would come and officiate at their wedding. She says, because you know my story. I was living in Regina at that point in time. Seminary never prepared me for that. I sometimes wonder if when I get to heaven, I might find out that that was some of the most important ministry I did in Lacombe. I don't know. I wonder. I'm still friends with that family today, and I did that funeral probably 10 years ago and the wedding several years later. Seminary trained me to maintain the status quo, but I'm an entrepreneur at heart. That made ministry interesting for me because status quo fits with managing anxiety. It causes much less anxiety if you keep things the way they've always been. Entrepreneurs are much more comfortable with risk, anxiety, and change. Entrepreneurs are sometimes hard to deal with. They never stop dreaming. They get bored really quickly. Change excites them. It's an adventure. Let me ride that 15-foot wave. (laughs) Tammy, were you kicking Brad? (laughs) Yeah. Now, if you're not an entrepreneur, what I've just described has raised your anxiety level (laughs) exponentially. The understanding of your congregation is a system inventory that 29 of you completed and re-reviewed the results over this weekend. I did that same survey. I was telling the group that we're here on the weekend. I did that same survey in a church where I was the pastor. It's a part of my doctor of ministry coursework. Guess what it showed? I was a transformational visionary leader and my board were managerial. They were the bean counters. You can imagine that board meetings got kind of interesting at times. (laughs) But as I reflected on the way in which people in my church described my leadership, I realized that I needed a board that was different than me and they needed a pastor who was different than them. If we were all visionaries, oh man, we'd dream great dreams, but we wouldn't go anywhere. (laughs) And if we were all bean counters, we'd manage really well what was, but we'd be stuck there. The challenge came in learning to work together given our differences. And I learned that I needed a managerial bean counters on my board. I needed people on my board who could push back on my vision. And I learned that I would be a better pastor if I had a strong board who had different skill sets than what I did. That didn't mean it was always easy, but I can tell you that it was the best board experience I ever had because we could have the tough conversations, and we did have them. But when we walked out of our board meetings, we knew we had each other's backs, even when we disagreed and sometimes disagreed passionately. If you're going to risk asking the God, where would you like us to go question, it's almost always going to challenge the status quo. As Max Licato puts it, God loves you just the way you are, but he refuses to leave you that way. He wants you to be just like Jesus. Now, you have a very unique situation, and I've talked a bit about this over the weekend. Very rarely do I work with a church that's led by a pastor who is a transformational visionary. Um, You know Brad. He is a transformational visionary. He's forgotten more dreams than most of you have ever dreamt. (laughs) He can't help but dream. That's exactly what you need when you plant a church. You need someone who dreams because there is no status quo to tweak. 
On your first back Sunday back in 2005, there was no last week that you could kind of tweak a little bit. You were starting from scratch. Your risk is not that you'll get stuck in a rut. Your challenge will be that you'll just dig new ruts. Your cha- and the challenge will be, which rut are we in this week? For transformational visionaries, the danger is that they'll dig many disconnected ruts. I get that because that's me. But I've had to realize that the best entrepreneurs still plan, and their plan is not to dig a whole bunch of disconnected ruts. They plan to dig a rut that is continually being dug. But the part I dig tomorrow is still connected to the part I dug yesterday that was connected to the part that I dug a week ago. I love some of these quotes. Isaiah Berlin says, The fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one thing. And Confucius says, The man who chases two rabbits catches neither. Great theologians, right? (laughs) But there's truth to that. Jesus was singular in his focus. He dug one continuous rut. It wasn't necessarily straight, but it was headed towards one destination, Jerusalem, following God's call on his life. My sense at this point in your journey, in your response to follow God's call as a congregation is to discern what is the one thing God is calling us to focus on as we move forward. What I've heard is I've talked with people who are a part of Jericho Ridge, who have been a part of, or have been a part of Jericho Ridge. What I've seen in the survey responses is that you've been trying to chase many rabbits. And there's a sense in which you've caught none. Here's the danger. You'll get caught in a new normal, and you'll get stuck in one rut, and you'll stop asking the God, what would you have us do question. You never answer that question. That has to be a perpetual question. You'll stop digging the rut. The rut will become a coffin that you die in. There's lots of churches that have a rut that is quickly becoming a coffin and they don't know it. In some ways, digging many disconnected ruts becomes many coffins and you have multiple deaths. Neither are good. (laughs) For transformational visionary leaders like Brad, getting focused on one thing will stretch him (laughs) because he'll want to dream. (laughs) And he needs people to come around him and say, Brad... We're still digging the same rut. This is the destination. We're going to take a curve here, but let's not stop digging this rut and let's not disconnect it. And I get that because that's me. You need what Brad has to offer, but Brad needs people who will come alongside of him just like I did and help him flesh out the vision, put the plans in action, bean counters, if you will, hold him accountable. Some of you have been through a church... So what you've been through as a church and there's the tension and anxiety that comes from living life in the middle of a continuum of spontaneous on the one end and planned on the other. Brad spontaneous, you've got other people who are planned and what you've experienced is the tension of people on either extremes pulling it towards the middle. And guess what? The best place to live is in the middle. You need a plan, you need to be spontaneous. But as I said to the people on the weekend, the hardest place to live is in the middle. But that's the best place. And, the, and we avoid it. We want to move to either extreme. You know, I just want people who are like me. If I'm spontaneous, well, you know, you come on, well, let's dream, let's dream. Managers want everybody over here. Well, let's get, let's get the details worked out. We need each other. What's happened is the, that tension stretches the elastic band. And you know what happens to elastic bands when you stretch them. Sometimes they break. Part of what I'm going to be doing this week with the staff and the elders is help discern together with them the focus that God is calling you to embrace at this point in your journey as you respond to Jesus' follow me call. As you've already discerned, living that out is the challenging part. But think about that for a moment. If you were going to start a movement that was going to take the world by storm 
and you had the opportunity to pick your dream team <laughs> to make that happen, what kind of people would you choose? What, what faces and names come to mind? What character qualities look, would you look for? Well, notice who Jesus picked. They were a motley crew. You've got Peter who never had a thought he didn't verbalize. Peter's brother Andrew could never extricate himself from living in Peter's shadow. James and John were at times more focused on their own egos and status than they were in following Jesus. Simon the Zealot would rather shoot the local politician that submit to the laws of the land. And Matthew the tax collector worked for the government and had a reputation similar to your local loan shark. He had a license to seal. For a Jewish person working for the Roman government, that was one of the worst things you could do. Can you imagine Simon the Zealot and Matthew side by side? Watch the fireworks. Then you've got guys like Nathaniel, Bartholomew, the other James, Thaddeus, and Philip, who just seem to go along with the flow and don't seem to rock the boat. Then there's Thomas, who would probably drive most of us to the brink of insanity because he wouldn't believe a thing you said unless he heard hard evidence upon hard evidence to answer all of his questions. And then what about Judas, who would turn on you on a heartbeat if there was a dollar in it for him? Can you imagine these guys on Survivor or Big Brother? <laughs> be great, great TV. Man, you can only imagine what that would look like. If we're honest with each other, we have to admit they're probably not the people that we would have chosen to turn the world upside down. They wouldn't have chosen each other. But Jesus chose them and he said to them, follow me. And Jesus called to follow me, brought them together in this unlikely group, and it was in the context of their life together that they would learn more fully what it really meant to follow me the way Jesus envisioned it. Now, isn't that the way it is in the church? Your church? You find yourself connecting with a church that's made up of people, many of whom you'd never choose to associate with, much less be friends with. Church is made up of the same kind of people. Same kind of people that Jesus chose to be his disciples. You choose to get involved in a small group, it's inevitable that there's someone else in the group. You wouldn't choose to be in that group. You know it's true, and if you don't, I do. <laughs> Back when I was in seminary, I took my MDiv, majored in counseling, took a counseling practicum, came home after one of my, my first counseling practicum course, and I said to my wife, I said, this person who I named to her, I won't name in this audience, who at that point was a, a person who caused me some significant personal struggle, I said, this person is in my lab. She says, what do you mean? I said, there is this person who reminds me of this other person. And next week when they assign counseling partners, I already know it. I'm going to be paired up with that person. <laughs> Guess what? That's exactly how it happened. This other person brought out the worst in me and I brought out the worst in them. We spend our whole time counseling about our relationship. <laughs> Isn't, that's the way God works sometimes is he brings us into those kinds of relationships. God has a sense of humor. Another occasion I was leading a small group where one of the participants was downright annoying, not only to me but to everyone in the group, including his wife. Um, <laughs> He never had a thought he didn't verbalize, and some of what he verbalized bypassed the realm of thought. It was hard to be civil to him sometimes, let alone Christ-like. Maybe you've met a person like that. Hopefully you're not a person like that, but we had an open chair policy in our group, and we said, we're going to take whoever comes to this group. There were times we lived to regret that commitment to an open chair. Wouldn't it be nice if Jesus' follow-me call was just an individual thing, something, you know, we could just live out, you know, within the context of the Trinity, me, myself, and I. 
And, okay, maybe we'd let God into the middle of it so it would make it a foursome. We'd go beyond the Trinity. Maybe it would be easier if Jesus' follow me call was a call to follow with a group of people, the composition of which we had some say in. What if it was a call to follow only with people you liked? People only, people who cheer for the Calgary Flames. Yay! Uh, <laughs> I have to figure out how do I work with Craig and the rest of my family on that. It would have been so much easier for those first two disciples, but that's not how Jesus works. So I interact with people who would claim to be serious about following Jesus. Perhaps one of the biggest challenges I see is that we live in a day and age where if we're willing to embrace the follow me call of Jesus, we want to embrace it at an individual level. Say, my relationship with God is my business, not yours. We really don't have an understanding of what it means to live that out in the context of a community comprised of diverse frustrating, sometimes downright annoying people, not unlike that first group of disciples. Jesus' follow me call is always rooted in community. His call to you individually and collectively is to wrestle with the question, what does it mean for me, for us, to love God and love the people in this church, especially those who you don't agree with or who say things differently than you do? There's an Irish saying that goes like this, to live above with the saints we love, ah, that is the purest glory To live below with the saints we know, ah, that is another story. (laughs) And we all know that to be true. If you were here this weekend, you heard me say that everybody contributes to both the healthy and the unhealthy functioning of any given system. Whether you realize it or not, if you're a part of Jericho Ridge, you're both a part of the problem and and the solution. You may not know exactly how you're a part of each, but that doesn't mean, that doesn't change the reality of the situation. It was true of me when I did the same survey with my church. We often don't see it that way. We usually evaluate our own responsibility with far more grace than we deserve, and we attribute far more responsibility to others than what is reasonable and fair. Jesus called his disciples to follow him in community, and if they'd been given a choice, I can almost guarantee they wouldn't have chosen each other. Their group would have looked very different. Can you imagine 12 Judases or 12 Peters or 12 James and Johns? What Jesus, when Jesus was asked to identify the most important commandment, this is what he said. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all of the demands of the prophet are based on these two commandments. Jesus was very clear on this. The call to follow me means loving God and loving other people, and those two cannot be separated. The Bible is clear that our love for God is manifested in our love for one another. If someone says, I love God, but hates a Christian brother or sister, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? And he has given us this command, those who love God must also love their Christian brothers and sisters. The follow me call of Jesus is always a call to follow in the context of community together with other people. There's no question there's an individual component to it, but there's an undeniable communal, communal component that challenges us so much of what we see reflected in our culture. In spite of all of its flaws and in the face of all of its flaws, the church is still God's preferred means of incarnating His message in the world today. His plan hasn't changed. Some of the most difficult people I've encountered have helped me wrestle with Jesus' follow me call in my own life. Guess what? Some of those difficult relationships are more difficult today than they were when I first encountered them because today I think I have a bit better understanding of what it means to follow me the way Jesus intended it. 
I understand a bit more clearly how difficult it is to know exactly what love looks like lived out in those relationships. I understand a lot more clearly the price I have to pay to love some of those people. Rather than making it easier for me, my increased understanding of the follow me call means that it's harder for me in those relationships. God's called you to follow him together. What does it mean for you to do that when you don't and won't always agree? How do you maintain healthy relational engagement when you don't agree? Anxious congregations demand that everybody agree, and in fact, relational engagement is contingent on it. If you don't agree with me, then I'm going to cut off relationship with you. Healthier systems have room for people to self-differentiate. My mom and I cheer for the same football team, but we cheer for different hockey teams. We give each other a hard time about it, and it goes both ways, and we're ruthless in how we do it, but we've never disowned each other or bailed out on the relationship because of it. You could focus on only one thing moving forward. I think Jesus said it should be this. What does it mean for you to love God and love each other? It's the same of each of you individually and for you collectively as a church. Churches move towards greater health as individuals within that church move towards greater health. It's really about the power of one. My wife said, why are you wearing this shirt? It's not because I want to, <laughs> I'm shameless in my promotion of my company. I want you to look at that red ball. The call of Jesus is for you to be a catalyst. All it takes for the rest of those balls to move is for that red ball to be released. Church health starts with you individually. Your church will move forward towards greater health as individuals in it get more healthy. It's about the power of one. One person being willing to take the first step and then others follow. Not everyone will follow, but some will. You're not responsible for anybody else. You're only responsible for yourself, and most days that's all you can handle, and some days that's more than you can handle. I want to close with two questions. What have you heard God say to you this morning? Remember, this is not just about information. It's about spiritual formation and transformation. And then the second question is, what is God calling you to do in response? You've been through a really rocky period as a church. A lot of pain and grieving associated with it. The ship you know as Jericho Ridge has been battered and your sails have been torn. The waves that have hit your boat have probably felt like something a whole lot bigger than a 15-foot swell. I want you to reflect on those two questions and your, where you've come from, what you've been through, where you are today as you watch this video.
Storms are part of life, individually and collectively as churches. God's word for you is that the anchor holds. The same God that called Jericho Ridge 10 years ago to a group of people say, follow me, is the same God who is with you in this storm who continues to say to you, follow me. I doubt that that group of people that planted this church ever had a dream that you would go through what you've gone through in the last 12 to 18 months. I don't think that was a part of the plan. <laughs> we all have dreams that don't materialize. Life gets rough. God's call to you. Your identity is rooted in his follow me call. Your purpose is rooted in a focused response to that call. And it's rooted in a call to do that together in community that is sometimes messy. That's reality. And that is God's call. It costs you something. I've been where you are. I've been where you are. I know what the journey's like. I'm here to tell you the anchor does hold. I know that. There were days I questioned it. <laughs> I questioned it really hard. God, where are you? Did I really hear your follow me call? Or am I out wandering in the desert someplace? Do I still want to follow you? The anchor holds. God bless you as you continue to figure out what does it mean for you to love God and love each other in the midst of the storm, holding on to the anchor. Well, thanks, Ken, uh, for sharing with us and being with us uh, through the course of the weekend. Uh, Ken will continue with our staff, with our elders. We'll have meetings uh, tonight and Tuesday night and with our staff team. And so we encourage you to uh, continue to pray uh, for us as a team and for our church as we continue uh, forward together. I want to give you just a description of uh, our time together now for our barbecue um, we have uh, brought back down uh, the kids that are kindergarten and older, and so if you're a parent uh, with a child in that age category, you'll pick them up right on the mats where they uh, were dropped off. If you're a parent in, of a child in the tadpoles, lambs, or koalas classes, so that's under kindergarten, if you could make your way up to the fourth floor and pick them up. And then uh, you'll want to make your way out the uh, gate three or gate two, the staircase over here, and the baptism tank, we've got it set up immediately behind and below me on the ground floor here. And there is, we've put it over there because there's some covered areas right close to the building and also covered areas uh, just close in proximity there 
uh, where you can celebrate baptism. So what I encourage you to do is, if you're a parent, you're going to head upstairs now, pick up your children. The rest of you can get your jacket on and make your way outside. And in about three or four minutes, uh, Sienna and I'll be ready, and we'll be in the tank. We'll get changed, and we'll be uh, set there. We'll all celebrate and participate and observe and witness Sienna's baptism. And then you'll come right back up here, and Carmen and the team have uh, lunch ready for us. And so when you come back up those stairs, you'll make your way all the way over to this far side of the banquet hall, and you'll grab a plate and make your way uh, through the tables that are set, and then uh, make your way and find your way to any one of the seats. So uh, if you want to do that, if you do not have a child to pick up, if you could just help, we've got our facilities team, uh, Sachi and Dave will give you some direction. Just kind of the chairs in this section and this section, kind of move them around a little bit so we can get some tables in here and uh, then they'll be ready for you when we come back up. All right, does that make sense? So strike these two sections, head upstairs, pick up your kids, and then we'll all head downstairs in about three minutes and uh, we'll observe Sienna's baptism. Then.